You're listening to the Ikra Book Festival 2020, brought to you by The Ark, Radio Ramadan 365, Al Khair, Human Relief Foundation, and Allison Street Cleaners. Allison Street Cleaners, is your laundry piling up? Are you too tired or busy to get it done? Come to Allison Street Cleaners, a fast and friendly laundrette. Services include dry cleaning, ironing, shirt service, and you can now also hire the rug doctor, making sure all your cleaning needs are fulfilled. Presenting you with an exclusive Ramadan special to Radio Ramadan listeners. £2 off every £10 spent until the 15th of June. Don't miss out. Visit us at 110 Allison Street, Glasgow, g 428 N or call 0141-423-3958 Alison Street Cleaners Clean water isn't a luxury It's the moral right of everyone Yet 785 million people live without it And the consequences are dramatic With diseases from dirty water Killing more people each year Than all forms of violence Including war It's why Human Relief Foundation bring clean water into the heart of communities. But they need your support to do more. Visit hrf.org.uk We believe that every child deserves a good education. This is the best way to ensure that they can achieve their full potential and escape a life of poverty for themselves and their families. All that these children want is a chance to learn and fulfill their dreams. With your donations, Al Khair Foundation helps thousands of children gain a quality education. Please support us so that we can continue to help some of the poorest children across the world. To learn more, please visit our Glasgow branch at 441A Victoria Road, Glasgow, G428RW or call on 0141-423-5747 or visit our website at alkhair.org. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh and welcome back to the Iqra Book Festival. Alhamdulillah, my name is Dal Duncan and I'm so delighted to be part of this last section of the festival which is focusing on storytellers, um, writers of, uh, of fiction. And mashallah, we've got a, a fantastic uh, grand finale for our festival just now. Um, I'm, you know, two amazing uh, women, uh, two amazing writers, alhamdulillah, and uh, without further ado, I'm, I'm going to pass over. But let me uh, introduce Raisa. Raisa is a Scottish Asian uh, Muslim screenwriter and director uh, based in Glasgow, working across television and film. Our credits include CBB's shows Feeling Better, Molly and Mac, Control, and a BBC uh, and sorry, a BBC Three social phone drama Control, and Meet Me by the Water, a Scottish Film Talent Network commissioned short film. Also, BBC Three's The Break and the upcoming CBBC teen monologues, Sparks. She's currently in development on a feature project with Film 4, as well as developing a number of other projects across film and television. So we're going to be in excellent hands as I pass over to Raisa. Raisa, welcome. Hi, um, assalamu alaikum everyone. I hope you're all well. Um, I'm just here to ask the questions. I mean, we're here to hear all about um, Asma's um, amazing fantasy series. Um, so I will tell you a little bit about our amazing author who actually I, I got into her books through her crime series, um, the Katak and Getty series, um, which I love because 
I was always looking for crime stuff that that really spoke to me and that was I think one of the first series that I thought gosh I I feel really reflected here and I feel like there's stuff in here that's really personal but um so Asma is the author of um The Unquiet Dead winner of the Barry Award the Arthur Ellis Award and the Romantic Times Reviewer's Choice Award for best first novel um, as well as the 2016 McCavity Award finalist and what we're going to be talking about today are the Khorasan Archives now correct my pronunciations here if I say them wrong um, and it's a four book fantasy epic which is concluding with the final book the blade bone um, so welcome thank you for joining us you're all the way in is it America or Canada that you're in so I'm Canadian but I'm Canadian. In, I live in Colorado oh you're living uh, Colorado. See, yes. I knew there was a link there with both <laughs> somehow um, thank you for joining us today. Um, and I guess we can, I think the best place to start is maybe to tell us a little bit about, uh, well, we'll get a reading from you, but do you want to tell us a little bit about the series before you, you do a bit of a reading from the book? Sure. Asalaamu Alaikum, everyone. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me to be part of your festival. Thank you also to Harper Voyager Publishers um, for connecting me with you and for putting their faith and interest into the Horizon Archives series. Uh, so it's a four book fantasy quartet and it's set along the Silk Road some thousand years in the future. It's obviously a dystopia. Uh, the current world has burned down, it's being refashioned. And it's set in this world of Khorasan, which historically would have encompassed parts of Afghanistan, Iran and Central Asia. Uh, mine is a little bit different. You'll see from my maps in the series that I've rejigged my book slightly, but it's an excavation of the Islamic tradition, Islamic mythology and history, but through the lens and perspective of women characters. So that tradition and history has been put entirely in the hands of women. And it's a story about um, a ruthless patriarchy called the talisman that has oppressed and subjugated the women of Khorasan. And the only ones to stand against them are this group of women mystics called the Council of Hira. And the two lead characters in my series are Arian and Sinia. And they've taken on the challenge of trying to bring this patriarchy down and reinstate equality and justice for all the people of these lands. Um, and, the, and the talisman are led by a sorcerer with a powerful oral magic known as the claim. And the sorcerer's name is the one-eyed preacher uh, and the claim is really based on the Quran. So it's a deep exploration of feminist themes combined with Islamic history and mythology, plus the part of the world that my family is from as a Pakistani Patan or Pashtun woman. So it's kind of an analog, particularly in the first book, The Bloodprint, to um, the Taliban rule in parts of Afghanistan and Pakistan. Great, and um, do you have a section of the book that you'd like to read? Um, and we'll do that and then we'll do a bit of a Q&A with you. All right, so the section that I'm going to read is, a, I timed it, it might be a little bit over five minutes, but- That's okay, it, that's absolutely fine. It's, um, it's, a, it's a section where Ariane and Sinia are facing down the one-eyed preacher in an initial confrontation and their magic is sort of, um, they're battling each other with their magic and they're both using the magic this oral magic of the claim, but they both see it interpreted so differently. The preacher took a new form then, the figure of a younger man dressed in the clothing of the talisman tribes, a pagri wound about his forehead, eyes like quarried hematite, burning in a skull, obscured by the thick shadow of a beard. The smoke dispersed, and the harsh, handsome angles of the skull became clear. Ariane's breath escaped on a sob, 
because she knew him, his eyes bright and clear, the pupil streaked with rust. You, you're from Candor, the pain eased, making it possible for her to think. And she told him, you fought in the earliest phases of the talisman's ascent to liberate women and children. How, how can you be that man? You were on our side. She flung out a hand to the army of the talisman camp. And now this, this is all you're doing. How can that be possible, preacher? She remembered something else, horrible and wrenching, something she couldn't reconcile with her knowledge of the claim or with the benedictions of the one. You won the people's loyalty at the shrine of the sacred cloak, she told him. You wore that cloak upon your shoulders. Her body was shivering and now her teeth began to chatter. You recited the claim with the sacred cloak on your shoulders. You promised the deliverance of the city of Candor, but you lied. She rubbed both hands over her face. Her palms came away wet with blood. The boom of the preacher's thunder ceased. The voice of a man spoke in a plain and unaffected dialect. His use of it was authentic. I did not lie. Do you not remember the history of Candor as it reemerged from the wars of the far range? The Rus left us to decades of war, and then there was what came after. If you know me, you know why I rose to leadership in Candor, to put an end to Bachabazi. The shameful words made Arian sob. The practice of Bachabazi was the reason Daniar, her love, had refused to give up his guardianship of the city of Candor. He'd protected the boys of the city from sexual servitude to warlords as the practice resurfaced from the old world. Of course, I did more than that, the preacher continued. You may remember the outrages practiced by the ruler of Lashkar. Every child of Candor knows the story of Hile and Jose. Marianne's sobs shook her body. Hile and Jose, two young girls who had been kidnapped, raped, and mutilated by a warlord from a province east of Candor. This man whose face she now recognized had set out to rescue the girls with a group of followers. A violent confrontation had taken place, but in the end, the rescuers had triumphed. The warlord's broken body was hung from a minaret, a public denunciation of his crime. Ariane had heard the tale as a child and she had often seen this man's face in manuscripts that recorded Candor's history before the talisman had burned them. You cannot be that man, she said at last. That man would never have proclaimed the talisman's law. That man was a protector of the innocent, just like Danyar, the guardian of Candor. The guardian of Candor. The preacher considered this. His time is at an end. Ariane's heart turned to ice. She felt the truth of it in her bones. She had seen it in Danyar's eyes, but blinded by the glories of the miracle of ascension, she had refused to admit it. No. The word was forged from steel, broken from her innermost self. No, I do not yield him, and you do not hold the power you seem to think you possess. Do I not? Lightning danced in the sky. The thunder boomed again, the image of the younger man's face vanished, and the smoke shape expanded to cloud over the lightning. The stone eye piercing her skull. The preacher set her arteries aflame. He made her deaf and mute. He blinded her. He wrenched her limbs from their sockets. She had never known such pain. She burned and bled and broke. She was subjugated and unmade. Then Sinia's arms crept around her and Sinia's golden circlets touched hers with a soft metallic clink. Their circlets aligned, the delicate calligraphy entwined in loops and strokes. And then the words vanished from the circlets and began to drift free, a tracery on the air that rose higher and higher, expanding across the preacher's stone-eyed skull. Leaf-thin pages of a manuscript turned. 
a page opened on a new chapter, and a series of verses from the Sana Codex fell from Arian's lips, like drops of honey melting in her throat until magic condensed in her veins. It poured from her fingertips in thin gold streams that wove around the image of the skull. The verses from the Codex were not addressed to Arian, first oralist of Hera. They weren't meant to be her solace, yet she took them as her own because the claim had ever been her solace. It had always supplied her need. The verses said, did we not soothe your heart and lift from you the burden that weighed down your back and raise for you your reputation? With hardship comes ease. Lo, with hardship comes ease. When your work is done, turn to devotion and to the one turn for everything. Fireworks erupted in the sky. Arrows rained down on the talisman army. Voices chanted a, wall from, a welcome from the walls. The citadel of Hira had finally joined the battle. When Arian looked again, the one-eyed preacher was gone. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, I could have just continued listening. I'm just going to show you the book. This is the UK cover. Yes, I have. I think they're beautiful. Oh, it's because I've got that weird, it's not going to show it. <laughs> the background. The and background. here's the US cover in case you haven't seen these ones. But this is Arian on the cover. Oh, it's gorgeous. So do you, do you decide what the covers look like? I have input into them, but the publisher has final say, and I give a lot of suggestions. I have more input now than I did at the beginning of the series. Yeah. So I guess, um, I mean, just from that reading alone, it's so rich. There's so much in it. It's one of those books that you can read over and over again and just continue to get something new from it each time. But I, hope so. I, I always think that, you know, actually building all of that in must take so much time and and planning and thinking through exactly how you're going to pull it all together where did the where did you start with all of this building this so, world yeah it's you're right it did take a lot of time a lot of research and i had spent i mean the idea had come to me many many years before so i was always thinking about it and just out of interest reading histories of the part of the world that i'm interested in histories of those cultures so histories of cultures along the Silk Road, but also all my life reading a lot about the Islamic tradition, the Sira, um, the history of women, which is so often neglected and underrated. So finding sources that would talk about women, talk about the mothers of the believers, their, their individual contributions, their personalities, um, and also other important women in Islamic history, important figures. So I did a lot of reading for a lot of years. And then when I condensed that down into the idea of what I wanted to write about, I knew I wanted to begin with my own history and my own culture as a Pathan um, and talk about what had been happening, how the Taliban had weaponized Islam against half the community. Um, and that the, the idea that any kind of intervention from afar was the solution we knew intrinsically and organically that it wouldn't be that women wanted to reclaim their tradition for themselves. So that was the kernel at the idea of the story. And then I read very systematically. I collected folklore, fables. Uh, I read about monuments, architecture, landscape, war. And then I started to make these piles of research about what's going to go into each of these books, which I want to write about. So in the first book, The Bloodprint, I wanted to write about um, the history of Afghanistan and Uzbekistan. And then in subsequent books, for example, The Black Khan, I wanted to write about Iran. Um, in the final book, The Bladebone, I was really interested in a setting that uh, embodied Jerusalem, not only as a place, but also as a myth, um, as the site of the mythic journey of 
or as some believe it to be real, um, the Isra'i Miraj, and to enca encapsulate both the historical accuracy of that, but the mythical and mystical dimensions of it too. So yeah, it was, a, it was a huge project. And then because I'm very much a plotter, I do a very thorough outline of my books before I even sit down to write them. So what, what, um, what amount of time would you say that you spend on plotting versus the actual writing? Uh, well, I mean, before I write a book, before I concretely sit down to write a book, I've done usually six months of reading. And then the plotting will take, uh, the outlining plotting might take another few weeks, maybe a month at most. And then because I was, as you know, I write a crime series. So for the last five years, I've been on this two books a year writing deadline. So I've only ever had four to six months to write one of these books. Looking back now, sure could have used an extra six months because it was a frantic and frenetic pace of writing. But um, yeah, so it takes me about six months to write one of these books. And are you doing them separately? So do you have, do you ensure that you finish your, your crime novel first and then you move on to your fantasy one or do you do them simultaneously? No, it's absolutely not possible <laughs> for me to write them simultaneously because you have to be, for me at least, you have to be completely mm -hmm. immersed in that writing world and you don't want anything to pull you out of it and you don't want the voice to overlap from one book to the next. The My Khatak Getty crime novels, they're really just told from two perspectives, the detectives Isa Khatak and Rachel Getty, um, but the Khorasan archive series is much more multivocal. It has multiple points of views and those points of views shift from one book to the next because I'm highlighting different character stories in each of the books. So I like to be completely immersed in one world and not. So I'll spend the first six months of the year on the crime novel and then the next six months on the, um, the fantasy series. Amazing. And, and I, I mean, I find it really interesting because um, you've got a background in human rights. And so in some ways, I guess the, the Khatak Getty series might feel quite natural in terms of, I guess, your kind of life experiences with work. But when you were talking about um, the Khorasan archives, it's, it sounded like they were much more personal to you in, in many ways, that they, they maybe had a, a deeper link to, to, I guess, what your soul wants to say. I think so. I think that's a good way of putting it. I mean, both series are very personal to me because my detective is also a Canadian Muslim of Pakistani Bataan background, but I was much more constrained in that world because a crime fiction audience is largely much older. It's nearly all white. And so you need to have a lead white character to sort of mediate and interpret your character of color or your character from an unfamiliar background. And you have to be quite, especially at the beginning of that series, you have to be quite um, circumspect in the issues that you're talking about both the policing, uh, the relationship between law enforcement and minority communities, and also how a person of a minority background views global human rights issues is not often not how the dominant culture views them. Their lens is entirely different. Um, so there was, I felt these conventions and these constraints upon me in writing that crime series, although by the time I get to the fifth book in the series, A Deadly Divide, I've let Issa loose and I've wrung him out and let him put all his, <laughs> his angst on the page and his political leanings and all the, everything that makes him the person that he is comes out in the series. Uh, but in the Horace on Archives, it was more internal. I wanted to write for myself. I wanted to write for my community. And by that, I, I don't just mean Pashtuns or Patans or Pakistanis and Afghans, but also the Ummah that cross-culturally and cross-religiously all the things that we hold in common, our history, our landscapes, our heritage, our practices, all of that. Um, so that was deeply personal. Um, and also, but the books in the Khorasan archives also do have a human rights bent because they're talking about uh, abuses by the Taliban. They're talking about human rights abuses by authoritarian rulers in places like Uzbekistan or in Iran. So there's a lot about political prisoners. There's a lot about torture 
Um, there's a lot about things that have actually happened, such as the persecution of the Hazara, for example. So I still, I still think in boat series, I'm able to stay true to my first love and my passion for human <laughs> rights. Um, but I think that's just another texture or another layer in the series. Yeah, I mean, I, I just, I think that um, any writing needs to be political in some way. And I think that your books absolutely are in that way. And how do you, so when you're, when you're looking at so many different types of heritage and culture, and even though they're all coming from, uh, often from kind of an, an Islamic perspective, you know, we know that um, even in Islam, the, the, the kind of heritage can differ depending on where you're looking. How do you, um, I guess, process all that and decide how you're going to um, include it within the books? Uh, were there elements that you kind of thought, well, um, this absolutely must be in it and, and I absolutely want to ensure that this is in the books and were there other elements that you wish you could have brought in but they just didn't feel quite as natural? Hmm. That's a good question. It's one I haven't been asked before. <laughs> I mean, I was, I was very decided about things that I wanted to write about. So, I mean, I knew I wanted to write an analog to the Taliban. Um, I knew I wanted to eventually write about Israel Miraj and what it means to us as a global community, what we, what we invest into the idea of it. I knew I wanted to write about In the Blue Eye, the third book in the series. I definitely wanted to write about the Hijra and I wanted that to be a journey taken by a black woman uh, into the land essentially of Ethiopia and then expand outward to Mali and Mauritania for the rest of that story. So that was an interesting journey for me. Um, I knew I wanted to write about Iran, but in Iran, I was very interested in um, the accomplishments of the Persian civilization in terms of their monuments and architecture. So that was something I wanted to bring out. I knew I wanted to write about the mothers of the believers, the wife of the prophet Muhammad, but I, I wanted to treat that very carefully and with immense respect. Um, so that was tricky from book to book, deciding how much of that to bring into the story. I wanted to write about, you know, things that give us joy, stories that we aren't sure are real, but sometimes think are such as the story of the spider web that saves mm. the Prophet Muhammad's life, all of those kinds of little things that I wanted to put into the story. In terms of leaving things out, um, the companions of Hira, who are this group of women mystics who possess the oral magic of the claim that is based on the Quran, nearly all of them um, are named after or have names parallel to the mothers of the believers. So for example, Ash the Jurist was a nod to the history of Hazrat Aisha, for example. But with Aryan and Sinia, I didn't name them after any of the prophet's wives because I knew they would be doing blazing new trails and doing things that may not have been in line with the tradition. And I didn't want um, to there are certain boundaries that I didn't want to trespass. And, and I felt that certain things could be interrupt, in, interpreted as being disrespectful or too inflammatory. So I set Adian and Sinia aside free of those boundaries. So they, they could do the things that characters in a novel do, you know, get into adventures and sword fights and whatnot, um, have, have love affairs and, what, and so on. So uh, that, was a, that was a careful balancing act that I, that I did throughout the series. But even Sinia's name, for example, even though she wasn't based on a historical figure, Sinia is the lone black character, uh, female character in the series to have a starring role. Of course, there's many other characters, particularly by the time you get to the blue eye. But part of that was kind of to reflect the treatment of black Muslims by Muslims in, our part, in other parts of the world, parts of the world that I'm familiar with and that I come from. Um, and part of that was because I knew that in the third book of the series, it was evolving to become Sinia's story because she was named for Abyssinia and she was going to take the Hijra, the journey of the Hijra. But more than that, 
in the blue eye, Sinia also takes a, another shorter journey, and that is she follows in the footsteps of Hajra, and she completes the Sayy in, in Mecca. So that was interesting for me too. So all of those things you have to think about very carefully. And if you're, you know, a believing and practicing Muslim like I am, you want to treat that history with the reverence and respect that it's due. And you may not always get it right. And that's the risk you take as a writer. And do you do you have um, a series of say sensitivity readers essentially, or, or other people that you know, if if they read it, they'll pick up on things that that might get you into trouble in a sense. Oh, I mean, yes, I feel I get, like trouble is a strong word. No, no, I get myself into I mean. trouble all the time with all my books. Don't worry. You're perfectly right to call it that. So I didn't at the beginning because I wasn't that. And this is the interesting thing, right? We see the world through this narrow lens of our own background and heritage. And we assume that somehow a universal lens until we are educated otherwise. So in the beginning for the blueprint, uh, I didn't, but I wish I had because there's some things I would have done differently in that novel. But with the blue eye, I did have a sensitivity reader. I do have a critique partner who reads all my books several times over and is really, really sharp. She's actually another author named um, Uzma Jalaluddin. She's written that book, Aisha at last. I love that book. And she has yeah. a second novel coming out soon called, I think it's going to have a different title in the UK, but it's called Hannah Khan Carries On. And that's a fabulous book about Islamophobia here in North America. So I'm looking forward to that one too. So Uzma looks at all of my manuscripts many times over and points out all kinds of things that I've missed and said, don't say that, don't do this, don't <laughs> touch that. So, so that's very helpful. But um, I think it is important because we can get very locked into our own mindset and it's good to be educated. And you as a, as, a, as a human being, you instinctively feel defensive at any criticism of your work, but if you just take that time to think through it, what does the criticism mean? Why is it being offered? How can it help improve your book? How can it better reflect um, reality and how can it be more sensitive and authentic? That's a very valuable service. But I will say that your sensitivity reader also needs to be well-informed and well-educated in order to provide you with the kind of critique and feedback that you need. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I guess fantasy is a really good genre to be able to present ideas that people might not be as naturally comfortable with, um, which is something you touched upon before. I mean, how have you found um, the kind of the fantasy market in general? You know, all, all those people that, that love all the really big sort of fantasy books and, and films and TV shows, how have they responded to the book? Have they fallen in love with the world? Do they, do they understand the, the layers that you've kind of embedded in it or have they, have they started to unpack them in the way that, that, that you kind of placed them in when you were writing it? So, I, I mean, that's a complex, complex question. Some readers have been able to unpack it and to see those layers. Um, but a lot of the times I think that I really wrote the series in two ways and I pitched it in two ways because I wasn't sure that I would be able to sell a four book series about the Uthman Quran, which is essentially what the blood print is. It's referring to the Uthman Quran, which is his blood stained the pages of the manuscript. So Muslims believe. Um, I wasn't sure that a, a Western publisher would be interested in a story like that. This was, I mean, I pitched it some seven years before so that there was a change coming in publishing in North America that hadn't yet come. Um, and I wasn't sure that a, a novel about religion and the, the uses to which ideology can oppressively be placed or, or, or the purposes it can serve would interest a publisher like that. So I wrote the series in two ways to reach a broader audience. One purely as a fantasy text, which is why the names of the landscape and the places and the history have all been slightly altered. I did a little bit of linguistic wordplay. So a place like Bukhara becomes Black Aura, which is more in keeping with fantasy lingo. 
and hopefully more attractive to a wider audience. So there's readers who read it on the surface without ever knowing that it's about the Uthman Quran, without ever knowing that it refers to an actual place or an analog, analog to um, the Taliban and Mullah Umar and things like that. Uh, and they just enjoy it as a, I hope they just enjoy it as a fantasy quest, uh, archetypal epic quest in search of a magical object that can rescue a subjugated society. And I hope that's a great reading for them and a good experience for them. And then there's readers from backgrounds like our own or readers with some knowledge of Central Asia, of the Middle East or Islamic studies who immediately seeing the first two chapters know exactly what the story is about. And as they read further, they understand how deeply Islamic history is woven into the storytelling. And they're having, I think, a very different experience. Um, and from what I've heard from those readers is it's it actually has made me very joyful and happy. It's like a sense of homecoming that you rarely see this type of expression of our history and our mythology treated with respect and reverence and excitement and joy, even though my series is often called dark fantasy um, and it has very dark themes because it is about oppression in the name of ideology. But still there's all these things that I'm recognizing, things that we respect and revere and that I'm putting into the hands of characters who can be playful and fun and interesting, sexy, um, seductive, uh, enthralling, deceitful, duplicitous, all of those things. Um, and so that's been a great response to see that people are accessing the different levels and layers of it. I mean, I mean, that leads me on to a question from someone here who is asking, um, why do you think that the Muslim community has stopped producing fiction um, in, in such a kind of a, a large number? Because in the past, we had lots of stories, you know, we, we grew up hearing stories about the prophet, peace be upon him and his companions. And, and we have that tradition within our, within, within our kind of faith to some extent. What is it that you think has stopped authors being as bold, I guess, as you have been with this series? Um, do you think it's, it's about the industry? Do you think it's about internal fears? Is it a bit of everything? It's a bit of everything. That's another complex question. It's a good question. So I think one, I recently undertook this project with two of my writing friends to make a list of current and contemporary Muslim writers writing across all fictional genres. And we came up with a list of 170 writers. So clearly there's been a blossoming of uh, Muslims writing fiction. Although I would say the bulk of those writers as we studied them, they were nearly all women. There was a majority of South Asians and they were ne nearly all writing YA fiction. So we're still seeing gaps in other areas. There's very few crime writers like me, for example. I'm, I think I know of four others um, from Muslim backgrounds. And the reasons for this are manyfold. And there's probably even more reasons that I haven't even thought of. One is that um, a lot of our communities in the West are still immigrant communities and immigrant families value security. And so they, even though we come from this incredibly rich history of cultural production where poetry and literature are so highly valued. Immigrant families want their kids to study and get good jobs and be financially secure. And as everyone at this festival, I'm sure knows the arts are hardly a, a, a career path that, that will ensure that security. Writers and artists and painters and illustrators and musicians are always living on that bubble of where they don't know where their next paycheck is coming from or their next book deal, et cetera. So that's a very understandable set of fears considering what the previous generations have, how hard they've had to fight um, and how difficult it was for them to make a place in the world. I think that's one thing that has choked off that cultural production. And also, I mean, I didn't start writing full time until I'd had two other careers, one in teaching international human rights law and one in practicing immigration and refugee law because I was 
following that trajectory, there was no role models for me to say, this is how to do it. And this is, I'm, I'm much older, I'm sure than many of your other panelists um, to say that this is the road, this is the path. These are the steps you have to take to become a full-time professional writer. So there was a paucity of experience. There was the fears of previous generations, um, well-founded fears, I would say, but still not much help or support to young dreamers who want to create new worlds across these different media. Um, Part of it is certainly the industry has not been receptive. If you look at the latest stats on publishing in North America, you'll still see that something like 89% of books produced in the last two years were by white writers. So there, and I can tell you so many of my own experiences from the publishing industry, working with four or five different publishers, where the story always has to be mediated or attenuated to reflect and respect the white gaze so that the white audience can connect with the stories. So my detective series is called the Issa Khatek and Rachel Getty series because the lead character is this Canadian Muslim detective. But every single time these books went out, they wanted to um, style them as the Rachel Getty and Issa Khatek series. And that was so that they could reach this broader audience who would then be drawn into the books. And then if they connect with Issa, great. So that's been an obstacle that's been standing in our way and in our way and still exists to this day, despite this sudden interest in writers of color, writers from marginalized backgrounds. Uh, and we just have to keep producing great work and battering down those walls. I also find in, although I have had wonderful, I don't want to misstate this, I've had wonderful support throughout from my various publishers, publishing teams, they've all been incredibly kind to me. My editors that I work with are fantastic, but there are still barriers and obstacles to be overcome in communicating your vision and to be able to convince people that your books can sell so it's not enough to write your book. The publisher has to put the marketing machine behind it too for our voices to break through. And I think like with any community, when you see writers becoming successful, that inspires further generations to follow in your footsteps. If you don't see that, you very well come to understand the fears of the parents' generation and the grandparents' generation that there is no security in a career in the arts. So it's a little, it's a little bit sad, but I really believe that the the work is being done and I'm hoping that, you know, two, three generations down the road, it will become, it's not something we have to keep defending and explaining because it's, it's so natural and intrinsic. It feels like it's changing. It, it definitely does. And um, what, what is it that, that made you go full-time writing then? What, what kind of made you go, right, this is it, I'm doing it. <laughs> so my answer is very pragmatic. It's not at all inspirational. <laughs> but um, so my husband and I had been moving quite a bit because we were in graduate studies for a long time. And then we were doing, he was doing a postdoc and we were chasing jobs all over Canada and the United States. And we'd moved so much that I just couldn't keep taking the bar exam in new places so that I could qualify to practice law. Uh, so I just said, forget it, man. You've got a great job here. Let me just sit down and do something else. Uh, and he was very encouraging too. He was like, yeah, you, you obviously should have been doing this all along because I had always been writing. I'd always been interested actually in journalism and wanted to become a journalist at the first part of my career. Uh, so I'd had like a detour through publishing. I was the editor of Muslim Girl Magazine here in North America. Um, I'd been writing for local papers, school papers, university papers, you name it. Uh, but then, so this period came where I, I would either have to commit to writing a bar exam yet again, um, or I could just take some time off and see if I could turn these stories into a full length novel. And I had a novel before my debut, The Unquiet Dead. It was a prequel where Rachel and Issa meet and I wasn't able to sell that novel. And my husband just said, well, get on to the next one. We'll see how you do with the next one. So I just kept at it. And it was that break between my other real career that allowed me to focus on it. And then once I'd sold that book, I had already written the blood print too. And I thought, okay, well, if I could sell a crime novel, maybe I can actually sell the blood print. And I 
found an agent who was willing to take on both series. And then once I was able to get that two book a year contract, I was like, now I can make this my full-time profession. But I will tell you that being a Pakistani daughter, my parents still, my mother particularly, still tells me, when are you going back to the practice of law? <laughs> oh, it took, it took my parents a few years to kind of actually say, yeah, she's a writer. <laughs> um, you know, they would, they would mention my part-time job to people if they asked, what does she do? And eventually, the minute they started saying she's a writer, I was like, okay, they're on board now. <laughs> yeah, they get it, yeah. they get it. <laughs> yeah, mine's on board too. Like she'll say I'm a writer, but she'll say, but she also is a lawyer. She'll add that into <laughs> I find so sweet and so hilarious. Oh bless! Um, and I guess one of the one of the questions that's come up quite a lot um, today um, around a lot of these stories is, do you see them going further? Do you see adaptations? Um, so I'm thinking of like the City of Brass series, which has been picked up by Netflix. Um, you know, it, it's going to be an epic. And in, in the same way, the Khorasan Archives has that potential as well. Is that, is that a dream that you have for it? Um, is, is it something you think about? Oh, I think about it all the time. It absolutely <laughs> is a dream that I have. But these kinds of things, again, it's a very pragmatic answer. It depends on your book sales, how well your books are doing, how well you're known. With the City of Brass, and I know Shannon, she's a wonderful person. Her series is magnificent. Um, it's so hugely popular and successful. So it has this inbuilt audience that um, distribution in Hollywood or elsewhere is aware of. And they want to plug into that because it guarantees security for when they actually make something. And that's how a Hollywood naturally and publishing too, of course, and any industry thinks in these terms is something going to be financially successful or not. So I think to be quite honest with you, my books would have to have a much broader audience. They would have to be much success, much more successful for me to have any kind of link. And then I've been suggesting to my agent that the Horasan archives really needs that Ertugrul treatment, you know, that Turkish soap opera that's been so widely popular all over the world. But because it's touching on the Islamic tradition and because it's the tradition in the hands of women, I can't see how the Islamic world, most of it, which is authoritarian um, and in some places quite oppressive to women, would embrace this series without going up in flames, right? I could just see a series of fatwas coming my way. So I don't know. I, I would think like a place like Pakistan or Turkey would be ideal for producing this series, but I'm not sure. I'd love to see it happen. I could certainly I mean, visualize some you actors. Want, you leader. want a room full of women writing it then, don't you? Yes. That's yes. what you need. That's what you yeah. need. And I, I'd like to be on the writing team myself. That's something else. So is that, is that something that you're um, exploring as well, writing for screen or, or theater, anything like that? Or are you quite happy just focused on, on, on books? Uh, I am very happy focused on books, but I have a lot of ambition in me. So I would like to start, and I used to write a lot of plays in my 20s um, and produce radio plays and so on. So um, I would love to get back into that work. I'm exploring some options like that. In the beginning of my career, as you know, I'm sure too, that I didn't have enough clout to, in, to insert myself into contracts and to insist on being a consultant or a writer. But now nine books out, I, have, I can't say that I have so much clout, but I have a little more than at the beginning. So um, contracts that I negotiate now allow for those possibilities for me. And I certainly hope that they open up. I'd like to write a film screenplay about an Andalusian princess um, I'm exploring the possibility of writing a, a play for theater right now. And I've written some short stories in other genres. I've written like a, 
a fantasy mystery dark romance for an anthology called Sword Stone Table, which is coming out next spring. And my story is called The Once and Future Qadi. So it's like writers of color reimagining the King Arthur tradition. Oh, wow. And my story is about an Andalusian judge who's called to the court of King Arthur to adjudicate the fidelity of Queen Guinevere. And it was just such a pleasure to branch out into this new area of writing. So I'm really interested in that. I also write songs and poetry. So any opportunity that comes <laughs> my way, if I have time for it, I will gladly seize it. Well, you've got tons of amazing ideas that I'm sure everyone would love to be watching and, and reading and listening. I mean, I guess, do, are, is there, are there audiobooks of this series as well at all? Yes, there are audiobooks for both yeah. my series, actually. That's, I, I mean, when you were reading out loud, I was like, I could just sit back and just listen <laughs> instead of reading. And I, I, I'm not one to listen to many audiobooks. Um, I prefer reading. Um, but yeah, when, when you were reading that out, it was, it was like being, it was just a really nice kind of story being told to you. Thank you. Thank you so much. What's funny about the audiobooks is that I had to record dozens of audio files with pronunciations for the, for the person reciting oh them, gosh. including of my name, which was funny too. But now I have them handy. So whenever anyone asks me, how do you say your name? I just send over the audio file. <laughs> That's brilliant. Well, alhamdulillah, Asma, uh, thank you so much. Uh, alhamdulillah, this has been absolutely fascinating um, to hear the, the, the intertwining with our uh, heritage, with uh, you know, the different genres as well, mashallah, um, and you know, something that's been done uh, certainly with Christianity for a long time. Dare I say it's probably been done in our rich Islamic past as well, but mashallah, great to hear it done for in a contemporary uh, setting as well. Um, I'm just going to ask a wee question. We're, you know, we're coming up, up to the end, but um, you know, you were talking about about the, the palatability of the writing as well, um, you know, being uh, very important and hence the, the fantasy genre, um, you know, and obviously talking about the white gaze affecting the writing and so on. Do, you know, do you feel that um, regarding religiosity and religiousness, whatever, uh, are things changing in the USA, would you say, where people are a bit more interested uh, or accepting of that topic? And, you know, would you maybe think that there might be some kind of like orientalist kind of like interest in Islam much more because it's still kind of up there in the culture would you say there's a growing uh, demand for it uh, in the wider audience no i, I would Is say that? it's a great question thank you very much for asking it but i would say the opposite is true i think there's maybe an elite liberal class uh, mm -hmm. and also people who are interested in islamic studies who do have a hunger for those kinds of stories and books um but that's a very small portion of society there's been such rampant and trenchant islamophobia here for the last ever since um, you know, our current president that was elected, but the seeds were sown long before that when Barack Obama was elected. So there's been, I mean, it's not as bad as Europe, certainly as my European friends are always telling me, but it's pretty awful here too. So anything uh, touched with Arabic or Islam is almost immediately weaponized against you. And so when, I, so when I'm on social media, for example, talking about my work, talking about my books, there are certain phrases and language I simply don't use because it immediately invites this flood, the floodgates of hell open and these, you get the, all these trolls come after you and with these anti-Islam talking points. So I can't, until that climate and culture changes over here, uh, America is a very insular society with a very parochial view and a narrow view of the world. And you know that 60% of Americans don't have passports, for example. Mm. Um, they're not interested largely in other parts of the world. So to get people interested in this broader experience of rich cultures and multiculturalism and pluralism and Islamic history, it's an uphill battle for sure. And I think that's why there was so much, um, there was such an element of discoverability about my books because I had to sell this idea 
of a Canadian Muslim detective, I had to sell the idea that the sweeping history of the Middle East and Central and South Asia could be interesting to a broader audience. And I had to disguise it a little bit to do that. Part of it was, you know, elements of creation and creativity that you like to do linguistic wordplay and you like to imagine new places. But part of it was just a very sober reflection on um, what's what's acceptable to mainstream publishing and mainstream audiences. I mean, I hope I'm wrong. I hope it changes. But uh, from what I've seen in the past four years, another part of my job is tracking hate crimes. So, um, you know, I'm not very encouraged, let me put it that way. <laughs> Well, mashallah, I have to say, as someone who's grown up uh, on the line, the witch in the wardrobe, you know, uh, using the Christian um, theology and story um, to make amazing works of art, you know, think about that, that's an enduring piece and it's, it's um, you know, the benefits that are in the tale uh, are there for all. So inshallah, you know, um, I'm hopeful that, that more and more people will be accessing it. Um, well, I have to say that um, we're coming up for the end, but um, I want to maybe just give a few minutes more as well, um, maybe if you've got some questions from your yourself as well uh, Raisa yeah um I, I guess it might maybe it's best to for us to end with um you telling us a little bit about when it, it's out right now isn't it the book we can buy it from yes the bible is available now I'm going to show you the cover again Please this cover was designed by Carolina. I, mean, I have to say I I very much love the the UK covers I just think there's such an intricacy in the design just even of them and that's Thank why I you. asked the question of, well, are you involved in, in picking what the covers yeah, Well, are? I told them that um, I would like to see it reflect Islamic geometry and Islamic floral motifs that you see in Islamic art and try not to make it look quite so Western. But the artist who designed the initial first three UK covers, Michaela Alkaino, she did a beautiful, beautiful job. I love those covers. And then Carolyn picked up that tradition so well with the blade bone too. Look, we had look. a lot of cover discussions. I was really happy with that. Thank you. <laughs> That's the fun, isn't it? It's like you've done all the work. Now, what's the art going to look like? That's going to sell it. I mean, yeah. um, and as you're quite active on social media, um, and and you do you do interact with people quite a lot. Has there been um, any sort of interactions that have really kind of made you quite hopeful about how your books are having an impact on the people that you're writing about, and in a sense, you're writing for? That's a great question. I, I recently received a message from my first reader from Kabul who discovered the series. I don't know how, but uh, I was so, so happy to hear from them because I always, that's, that's the community you most want to hear from, the community closest to the story. And that they were, she was very happy to see the books and to see herself reflected in the story. So that was really joyful for me, um, a beautiful moment. So I've, I've, had, I've had a lot of interactions with young Muslim women and girls who've been very enthused about the story and very excited to see the figures from history that they recognize and respect. Yeah, I think that's beautiful. Having, there are so few um, contemporary role models within fiction for Muslim women. Um, and I, the more that we have, I think, the more people that will decide to go into the arts that will make their voices heard the more stories we'll have out there and hopefully the more understanding there will be in the world as well. I hope so, inshallah. I mean, I mean, mashallah. Well, sisters, I just want to thank you so much for an excellent uh, discussion, and um, you really have um, got us uh, all really excited for the, you know, reading the book as well, mashallah. And just feel so lucky that we've got so many uh, creative people that are doing the work that you know so many of us dream uh, that should be out there. So, alhamdulillah, thank you so much, sister, um, and uh, to to you both, mashallah. Um, well. 
that's really the end of the festival at the moment, so uh, it really is just with myself to thank everyone involved. Um, I've got a, a massive list, and I just want to say um, I've really um, enjoyed the day, and you know, what better time, in a way, uh, to start a book festival than when we're all trapped inside, <laughs> uh, you know, with um, with no excuses, as it were. Um, so, alhamdulillah, um, I want to thank the authors um, that we've had. We've had um, Shahina Ayub Bati, we've had uh, Shirabani Basu, we've had Guy Bowman, Diane Drake, Medina Tenor Whiteman, Saqib Razak, uh, Sheikh Abdul Aziz Ahmed, Arya Campbell Danish, Etzo Skatema, um, Safina Mazar, Osma Zinat Khan, and also our interviewers as well uh, with Zubair Malik in the morning, uh, way back in the, uh, the start of the festival, and Raisa Ahmed, uh, Basit Amjad, Joanne Stoddart, uh, myself, Dao Duncan, Navid uh, Akhtar, Sajad Ayub, Akhzabek, um, also the hosts uh, Sajid Qayyum, uh, Maria Sharif, and of course Sophie Hall. And finally, the others uh, behind the scenes um, who I've been involved with, Nadim, Abati, uh, Mazun as well. And finally, we've just had this massive flurry uh, backstage, as it were. Um, of just mentioning of the tech support, which of course you know has been um, the invisible nature of it. Of course, is the reason why it's been so blooming good. So thanks so much to um, the people uh, Rehan Ali um, and Faisal, uh, the technical team in Pakistan, who have been working around the clock to make sure it's gone as smoothly as it has. And I've been so impressed. You know, mashallah, this is a new, uh, not just a new um, kind of uh, mode of festival for just ourselves, but of course just globally as well. So. Mashallah, um, you know, really glad that it's gone so well. So may I perhaps ask that you make dua that inshallah, um, you know, everyone's rewarded. And of course, um, that inshallah, we can have um, much benefit from it. And, you know, I'm really, um, especially after the interview, I must say, uh, with Sheikh Abdulaziz Ahmed, just so excited about the, the ability to, inshallah, meet each other and, uh, you know, uh, see each other face to face inshallah in 2021 so um thank you so much and uh, a massive flurry of thank yous from everyone as well okay leaves for me to say assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh